Welcome back to another episode of season two of Stern Chats. Today we have a very special guest in the studio, our very own Stephen Avila. His story is one of courage, perseverance, and community. Sherry, can you tell us a little bit more about Stephen? For those of you who don't know him, Stephen is a first-year MBA student here at NYU Stern. Before school, he spent several years working in Washington, D.C., working in the Obama White House, and then for the Hillary Clinton campaign. Stephen is also a cancer survivor. It's not often that you hear somebody's story once and it changes your view on the world, but that's exactly what happened to me when I met Stephen for the first time. Now, listeners, on this episode, we had a little help. In the studio today, we have one of our associate producers, Steve Carey, with us. Steve, when you think about this episode, what really stands out to you? When I sat down with Stephen, what amazed me was both his dedication to his career in politics, both working for Barack Obama and on the Hillary Clinton campaign, and also his dedication to surviving what could have been a very deadly disease in testicular cancer. And now that he is cancer-free, both what he is going to do at school and what he plans to do uh, going forward into the future. So, Steve, you're new to Stern Chats, and we're so happy to have you, but can you just introduce yourself to the audience? Absolutely. I'm a first-year student here at Stern. I grew up in Los Angeles, California. I did my undergraduate degree at Colgate University, after which I joined 21st Century Fox, focused on Fox Sports and National Geographic. Well, thank you so much for being part of the team and bringing so much enthusiasm and energy to the projects. We really appreciate it. Also in the booth today, we have Rachel Gordon, Derek Fine, Daniel Tennyson, Bob Kerr, all working on the technical stuff for the show. But it's a great episode, Sherry. What do you think? Should we just get right into it? Let's get started. All right, then. Cue that music. University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Here with today's program are your hosts, Frank Fericchio and Sherry Holt. Hi there, everyone. We are so happy to have Stephen Avila in the studio with us. Welcome. Thank you for having me. We are so excited to hear all of your stories. He's got some great ones. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. For those of us who don't know you in the Stern community, can you give us a 20-second intro? Sure. I'm a first-year student here at Stern. Prior to coming to New York, I was in Washington, D.C., working in a couple different roles across the Obama administration. Um, regardless of the election, my job would have expired. So here I am at business school. Super excited to be here. Originally from California, but very excited to be in New York. Yeah. You know, I can see that sunny disposition just emanating off of you. Happy California person. Yeah, you know, yeah. us Californians, we really, I feel like we find each other. We do. You know, it's like we search the entire East Coast for a West Coast. Well, you, know, you know what? I actually lived in California briefly, and you guys have a totally different perspective on, like, weather. Because, like, <laughs> right now, outside, it's, like, probably 20 degrees. It's, like, November. When I was in California, you guys were, like, oh, it's May gray. I was, like, what does that mean? And they're, like, oh, it's, like, slightly gray 40% of the days. I'm, like, oh, my God. Get some perspective. It's still 65 degrees, guys. Frank, if I can see my breath, I'm usually pretty cold. So oh, my God. 55, 60, you know, doesn't just matter. Just get a jacket, everybody. It's nice to be, like, a little brisk. Uh, well, come from California. You must love fall in New York. I do. It's beautiful. You know? It's amazing. And holiday season here, it's... 
pretty magical. Yeah, and you know what? There's no better place in the fall to be than Washington, D.C., right? I, yeah, I would agree with that. It's a, it's a wonderful city. I'm really curious how you wound up getting there because when I hear your story, or at least when people introduce you to us, they're like, hey, here's the kid that wor- worked for Barack Obama. Now, I know you're a, you're a staffer, but can you tell us how you got to D.C. and in, in that position? Sure. So it all kind of began my junior year of college. Um, I was studying business in the small state school, Cal State Monterey Bay. Beautiful small school right on the coast of Central California. A ridiculous place to go to school. Like, woke ridiculous up every out. morning. Literally, the campus was right on the coastline. You would wake up, and there was uh, the Pacific Ocean. That's exactly what you were just describing, oh. Frank. People <laughs> walking in class with surfboards. <laughs> Probably. Yeah, literally the polar opposite of New York City. But my junior year, I applied for an internship program called the Panetta Institute Congressional Program. And that was run by Leon Panetta, who at the time was the CIA director, would later go on to become the Secretary of Defense. He was originally a congressman from California. And what he did is there's this great program where every California State University, every year they send one student to Washington uh, to intern on Capitol Hill for like a member of Congress. And I was a business student and didn't think, you know, I really had a chance uh, in, in applying for this program. But I was super interested in what was going on. Barack Obama was a recently elected president. He was the first president I got to vote for. So I was very intrigued by the president and everything going on in Washington. So I applied to that program. I got that program. Went to Washington, D.C. for a semester. Now, hold on a second. Wait, how many people apply to that program? Um, that's a great question. I was in a school of 5,000 students, so it's open to everybody. So one in 5,000. Sherry, wow. let's do, <laughs> the, wait, let's do some there. quick math. <laughs> what is the carry the one? Let me get out my... Yeah, it's some quick mental math. Yeah, <laughs> quick mental math. One in 5,000. You know, it doesn't... I'm going to go probably calculate. It doesn't matter. Might as well be one in a million. It is. I mean, it's, it's clearly a really incredible opportunity that takes you across the country and you know, sort of plops you into the middle of a really, really exciting movement. Yes, absolutely. And this was in 2010. And so I was there as like the only business major of kind of my cohort. Everyone there is like a political science major, pre-law, things of that nature. And so to be on the Hill in 2010 was interesting because that was the year that Democrats got walloped in the midterm elections. And this was like walloped kind of the is first... such like a cartoon way of like saying something, uh, like saying something intense. Like that's what like Batman would say in a cartoon. He'd be like, wallop. It's an onomatopoeia almost. Is you know, it? Somebody, oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think it actually is, but you see somebody like tripping and like wallop. I don't think wallop refers to tripping. I think, no, I think. <laughs> they like fall on their face. No, I think wallop uh, doesn't wallop refer to like a smack. Yeah, like uh, like yeah, exactly. Yeah, isn't it okay? But back in the story now. So yeah, yes, yeah, you're on the hill. The de- the Democrats just like lost. Yeah, uh, so Democrats get pummeled, and that was really interesting because you know I was in an office, and you know my member of Congress happened to win her reelection, but staff members would be pouring in just the, the day after, just shell-shocked. You know, what am I going to do? I can't believe we lost our job. You know, this is in direct, this is a response to everything that we've been doing the last few years. Where do I go from here? And I knew I was going back to school because I still had another year left in school, but I knew I wanted to go back to D.C. because that just seemed to be such an important place to be, especially at that point in time. So I went back to school, continued my business degree, even though I knew I wanted to like not pursue business at this point in time. And I was like, how do I get back to D.C.? So I actually applied for a White House internship my final semester of school. And same thing, I thought I didn't have a snowball's chance in hell of getting that. I'm like, again, here I am a business student from this small school. I'm not Ivy League educated. I'm not connected really in any way. 
but let's see what happens. And uh, sure enough, got the interview, landed the internship. It was and meant to be, Stephen. It might it might have meant to be. It meant to be. That sort of goes to show you, you know, even if your chances seem really low, you should just take a chance. You uh, know, apply, like go for it. You have no chance unless you take one. Oh, hold on a second. Think about that. Is that a Stephen quote, or is that is that something I picked up along the way? Maybe we might have to Google that to see where it came from. But (laughs) that's that's a good one. If that's a you quote, get that printed up on a plaque (laughs) because that's real. That's really quality. Okay, so something I'm curious about. I mean, is how did you get involved in politics, or like how did you become interested in it? Sure. Because you said you're doing business, Mm -hmm. and you know I know it was an exciting time, but I mean I'm it's still a very specific thing to want to do. Yeah. I honestly, I, I credit a high school civics teacher of mine. You know, he, this was, I guess, my senior year of high school, so I was 17 years old. This must have been right before the 2008 election. And he said, hey, have you guys heard about this Barack Obama guy? You know, he just announced that he's running for president. Um, he's this junior senator from Illinois, kind of doing some cool things. And I really wasn't paying attention to anything. You know, high school senior, didn't really care. But what drew me to Barack Obama was, you know, at this point in time, you know, the wars overseas had been going on for, you know, at least five years at this point. Didn't really seem like there was an end in sight. And he kind of seemed to be the guy that was like, you know, we need to, like, figure out a strategy of why this isn't working. And for some reason or another, that was really a compelling issue for me that I really cared about. And so he was on my radar almost immediately. And I can remember having conversations with my parents about this Barack Obama guy. And, you know, they just had all these reservations about this guy can't win. Like, who is he? You know, I don't think our country's ready, et cetera, et cetera. And in some way I said, no, that's not the America that I believe in. I know we can do this. I mean, he just won Iowa, for goodness sake. He has a chance. And so when I was 18, um, I actually volunteered at like voter registrations and getting people. You know, I was in California, so our, our state is pretty heavily Democratic. But in terms of trying to get people to turn out to vote, local races, et cetera. You're a good American. I just want, I just want you to know that. <laughs> but that's exactly that. what they talk about when they're talking about like, um, you know, like civil service and stuff and like, you know, like being patriotic. You know, there's like little jobs that like move the whole democratic process forward. And they matter. Yeah, absolutely. Voter registration. Yep. And you got to organize people. And because, you know, one man with an opinion, one woman with an opinion, like that's great. But you have to get your friends, your family, your neighbors to be involved. And that's the only way that, you know, you, you'll ever get anything to change around here. And so I was very drawn to Barack Obama's mission of that. He was a community organizer, you know, he had had a pretty um, meteoric rise, you know, to the top of where he was going. And so, you know, once I was in college and he had already been president, I was like, man, it would just be an incredible opportunity to be able to serve in the administration in any way. And so my internship was like the perfect way to get out there. So when you were sort of thinking about how to get involved in the campaign, you know, you hear a lot today, politics is not a spectator sport. You Mm -hmm. have to get involved. You have to um, integrate yourself into the process if you're going to comment on it. So what was it about Barack Obama's message that sort of drew you in and inspired you to advocate for him in in a grassroots way? For me, I was always very drawn to like his very powerful, optimistic view of like what we could do as Americans uh, together. Um, But is there a specific speech that stands out in your mind? Yeah, you know, I I think when he won Iowa, um, if you go back to the primary in early 2008, there was a, his, his acceptance speech in Iowa was just phenomenal. Um, You know, and 
something that I think history books will look back at now is, you know, the famous Yes, We Can. But I can remember just the chant of the crowd uh, there in, in, in Iowa after he had won because it was such a, an upset. You know, he was running up against Hillary Clinton and no one thought that, you know, again, this guy could win Iowa. And that just, just such a powerful, powerful moment. That together, ordinary people can do extraordinary things because we are not a collection of red states and blue states. We are the United States of America. And in this moment, in this election, we are ready to believe again. Thank you, Iowa. Organizing and, and campaigning is tough. And as a volunteer, you know, you're going, you get a clipboard with 200 names on it. And it's like, great, go canvas, go knock on doors and convince people to go vote and yeah. convince them to go vote for yeah. your guy. Your enthusiasm can be extinguished so easily yeah. in these types of scenarios because it really is grueling work. And in some ways, it's almost like sales, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you get a thousand no's for one yes. Yeah, so it's hard because you're knocking on doors. And first of all, people never open their door to anyone. I don't know that I would. Right? Yeah, you look through trying and you're to like, sell you something. Yeah, who's this guy? Like, come on. Yeah, he's trying to sell me something. I'm not interested. Selling vacuums or something. Right. And then when you do open the door and you say, hey, I'm here, you know, to talk to you about uh, the election. Usually that's like an immediately, like, <laughs> we're going to slam the like, door. Exactly. Like, that's the last thing I want to talk about like, on a Saturday, Sunday, whatever. Their fears were confirmed. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> right, yeah. And so, but every time I did connect with somebody, and said, hey, by the way, this is where you can vote. By the way, is there anyone else in your home that can? Hey, by the way, this is what we're fighting for. And having that conversation, um, anytime you made that connection, it was like, wow, what a boost. You're like, all right, I'm ready to go on the next so one. You and love it carries one. you into the, uh, the next 100 no's that you'll get. Absolutely. Especially, I think, for Barack Obama's election. That was the very first one I got to vote in, very first one I got to work in. And so I had just all that enthusiasm and energy anyway, because it was like, man, this is my guy, and we're, we're going all the way to the White House. And, you know, and I, would, I would think about, like, wow. Like, here he is now, but imagine, like, next year when he's in Marine One and he's actually president of the United but States. But see, you didn't have to imagine it. I did because, And let's fast yeah. forward. Let's fast forward sure. to the White House because that campaigning you did obviously worked, worked out because he got into the White House and then you were <laughs> right there. You're interacting with him. I'm curious what it's like to interact with the president. Yeah. So I ended up... Uh, uh, after finishing my internship, uh, I got hired on full-time, and I was working in the Office of Presidential Correspondence. And so that office was responsible for all the letters and greetings and gifts that the president and the first family received. And that was really interesting because, you know, the president received something like 12 million letters every single year, believe it or not, not just from Americans, but from around the world. And so imagine these are stories from, you know, mom and pops in Midwestern Iowa to junk business. mail. Yeah, junk mail. Yeah, I mean, we got some pretty <laughs> strange things. It's a Sears catalog. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Every night we sent President Obama 10 letters. And every night he would get that in his incoming with his memos, his national security briefings, all the things that are super important for a president to have. But he made the time for those 10 letters. And he would come in and he would tell us, don't send me fan mail. I don't want to see it. I know what people think about certain things. I want to see what real people, what real Americans, I want to hear their thoughts. But see, Sherry, what I think now, now that I hear about the letters, and I know you're thinking the same thing, is like, there's got to be a letter that stands out to Stephen 
as like a significant letter. I was just thinking I'd love to receive fan mail, actually. <laughs> affirmation is good. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yes, but back to the affirmation is good. Point. Affirmation is good, but I don't know if it makes you a good president necessarily because you have to be challenged in that way. And so whatever the topic of the day was, whether it was something going on in the economy or a national crisis of some sorts, we tried to tailor the message of that night to the president. And so I'll give you an example. You know, something that kept coming up was the Keystone Pipeline. You know, and there were so many uh, perspectives to that issue. You know, you had the environmentalists that felt a particular way. You had the business people that felt a particular way. And, you know, we just got tons and tons of opinions. I can remember coming across a letter from this woman. I think she was from Ohio. And she said, you know, dear President Obama, I'm a grandmother. And so when I think about all the decisions that I make in my life, I think about that the perspective of my children and my grandchildren. She goes, I know you're a father to two beautiful daughters. Hopefully one day you'll be a grandfather. But I want you to think about all the decisions you'll make and how that will impact their lives. And so when you think about the Keystone Pipeline, I know in the grand scheme of things, this probably isn't like the catalyst issue in dealing with global climate change and all the rest. But I just want to leave you with this one thought. No snowflake in an avalanche ever feels responsible. And then like she just like ended it right there. And I remember like reading that and I was like, wow, like what a really powerful way to like end, uh, you know, end your story. It's a well-written letter. It was very well-written. Poetic. It's and like so, prose, yeah. Yeah, so I brought it to my boss. I was like, hey, I think uh, this needs to go tonight. Like I think the president needs to see this. And she's like, yeah, I agree. Let's give it to him. And then you're like, I need to hand deliver it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I didn't get to hand deliver that one, but I know that he personally responded to her. And because that was what was kind of amazing is, you know, despite the fact he got these 10 letters, he personally responded to about five or six every night. So just imagine like with us, like we get emails and letter, all these different things. Like how much time do we have during the day to respond to anybody? And here you had the president of the United States that was making time to write back to just everyday Americans. It was amazing. That's amazing. Well, now yeah. I feel kind of guilty that I don't respond to Sherry's emails. Right. <laughs> I do send you an avalanche of emails, so maybe if you could respond to one snowflake of them, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Sherry. You just need like a really provocative like message at the end to but get Frank to respond. Sherry, don't you, don't you want to know about like, like Stephen meeting the president and like... Are you curious about that at all? I, I have known Stephen for a little bit, actually. You know, since he got onto campus, I had the pleasure of meeting him quite early on. And so I heard a little bit of his background and story in the White House and actually saw a photo of you mm -hmm. both together. And you said that there was a moment where you were speaking and he, you know, he asked you a question. I'd, I'd love to hear that story. Yeah. So the photo you're referring to is... Um, what they call my departure photo. And I, I use air quotes there because I'm not Don't sure. use air quotes yeah, on a radio show, radio. buddy. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Good flag. Um, <laughs> that photo you're referring to is actually what they call a departure photo, at least in the Obama White House, which was pretty cool. As you left the White House, you actually got to bring your family into the Oval Office, and you got to introduce your family to the president. And so as I was leaving, um, I was getting ready to transfer to a new job, uh, still within the administration, but outside the White House. And so I got to bring my mom and my dad and my brother and my sister. And it's really cool because you go in and you go into the West Wing and they put you in what's known as the Roosevelt Room, which is like right across the street, or, which is right across the hall from the Oval Office. And you're in there and you're there with about five other families. And one by one, they call your name and you get to go into the Oval Office. And so we were the first ones to go. I think they probably did it alphabetically. And right away, 
as we step out, before we even get into the Oval Office, President Obama's right there. Hey, Stephen, how you doing? You know, hey, how are you? And uh, right away, he's like, oh, this must be mom, this must be dad, come on in. And we, like, walk right into the Oval Office. And before you go in, you actually write a memo to the president to so give, like, some background on who you are and your family, just kind of like a reminder, right? So he's like, oh, you must be mom. I hear you're a teacher. Is that right? And, my, you know, so my mom's having a conversation. Then he, like, looks to my dad. Oh, and you're an LAPD detective. Thank you for your service. Like, tell me about that. And so, you know, we have, like, some chit-chat, and, you know, we get some photos taken. And he asks about my sister and my brother. And, like, he's so good, like, just so good. And I knew that there were some things I wanted to say, like, going in. I had kind of this script in my head. And someone had told me that when you're in there, it's almost like when you're on a... Um, what are these called, like the merry-go-rounds as a kid, where like everything else is blurry around you, but you, if you're looking at someone across the way, like they're in focus, but everything <laughs> else is a blur. I wondered, did you hear like your heart thumping in your ears? It was a big moment. It was until you meet him, and then all of those anxieties like fall the wayside because he's so good and so magnetic about making you the only person in the room. And that's, that's what I would say is one of his greatest traits is that for someone who's so busy and so important, he, was a, he's, he is a gifted listener in the sense that he you know, puts his hand on your shoulder and just like, makes eye contact with you, and, and it's like the only, the only you exist. And so, yeah, it was, it was crazy. Well, what, could you share with us what, what he asked you when yeah. you were in there? So um, I knew what I wanted to say, and he goes, oh, so Stephen, you know, I see you're moving on to the Department of the Interior. Um, which I was still going to be a political appointee. I was just working for the secretary. He's like, oh, that's so great. You know, we're trying to do a lot of great stuff there with the environment. And, you know, the Department of the Interior is tasked with, like, overseeing the National Park Service, the Endangered Species Act, and then also relationships with Native American tribes. And he had actually just come back from a visit in North Dakota where he had visited a tribe. And so something I wanted to tell him, I said, you know, working at the Department of the Interior in our intergovernmental office, I can't tell you how much your visit meant to that tribe. You know, I think he was only the third sitting president, and this is something that you might want to check. I think he was the, only the third sitting president in American history to actually visit an Indian reservation while president of the United States. So think about that. That's like crazy. And he said, you know, uh, Michelle and I were really touched by what we saw out there. Um, you know, we really want to bring some of those kids that are out there to D.C. so they can just get a feel for what Washington's like and try to give them some opportunities beyond North Dakota. And I said, yeah, I think that's a great idea. You know, again, like it just, it's, it means so much that you visited. And I said, and beyond that, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to serve in your administration. You know, I can remember when I turned 18, I was so excited to vote for you. I can remember my mom and I sitting on the couch and watching your acceptance speech uh, in Chicago and just like how much that meant to us and for the country. And so for the opportunity to work for you, that means a lot to me. I said, oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And I go, and secondly, I want to thank you on behalf of the LGBT community because working in the correspondence office, we got so many letters from people, not just in the United States, but around the world, of how much what you did has meant to them and their own personal stories and the lives that, that they live. And that's just, also, it's just really touching for me as well. And the fact that I can thank you here in front of my family in the Oval Office. And at this point, my voice kind of began to crack because I was getting like a little emotional. Um, I go, it really means a lot to me too. He said, Stephen, I'm really proud of you. And he gave me a hug right in front of the Resolute desk. Oh, that feels good, that hug. Oh, my oh. gosh. He, and if you think he's like a great handshaker, he's a great hugger um, <laughs> as well. Yeah, I imagine he's, he gives a good hug. So he, if I hug you after this interview, it is 
a hug all that right, has Sherry. touched the president of the United States. <laughs> oh, all right, former, former, former president. president. <laughs> Everybody relax. Former president. But, so that so that whole thing, I mean, that whole experience in D.C. is just it's like a dream. It's so amazing. I mean, I wish I could tell everybody listening that it was just a happy story. I wish that I could tell everybody that there was no adversity that had to be overcome and that there was no conflict in the middle of that process. Yeah, I wish you could too. You know, while you were serving your country and serving the Obama administration, something something happened to you and, you and you discovered a new part of yourself. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, absolutely. So after I left the White House, as I mentioned, I was at the Department of the Interior. And in 2015, uh, earlier in that year, I had this like strange back problem, like persistent pain that just would not go away. You know, and I was playing soccer at the time and on a few different intramural sports teams. And so I just kind of chalked it up as a sports injury. And so I put up with it for, you know, longer than I should have, you know, about two months before I finally decided, okay, like I need to go to a doctor, see what's going on. Was it just like a dull pain? Like when I was one to 10, it was just like a... Yeah, just a dull, like trying to stretch it out. You know, I would give it like a four out of 10, you know, just always there, never... Like no a relief. neutral face, you know, when they show you those faces at the doctor. It's the exactly. emoji with the two eyes and just a straight line. Straight line. That's face. it. That's it. Exactly. And so I went to an urgent care, and she said, "Hmm, this is kind of weird. Um, you know, you might want to go to a urologist. You know, maybe you've got, you know, some sort of infection, something going on. Go there." So I go and get. Uh, I go to a urologist, and they do an ultrasound actually. And he goes, "Ooh." You know, you look like you're, like, swollen a bit in uh, one of your testicles, and uh, this is kind of concerning. Um, so let's go and get, like, a CAT scan done, and, you know, we need to run some, like, blood tests, and, you know, come back tomorrow. You know, literally on Monday, I went to an urgent care doctor. Tuesday, got some more tests done, and by Wednesday, uh, he's like, you need to see an oncologist. Uh, you have stage 3 testicular cancer. And it, it was so shocking because, one, you know, nothing can ever prepare you for a cancer diagnosis. Two, here I was, tw- I was 25 years old in, like, probably the best shape of my life. I mentioned I played soccer. I was very active. And here I was with, like, a stage three cancer diagnosis. And, you know, they said, yeah, your back's bothering you because you literally have this seven and a half centimeter tumor growing in your abdomen. And that is pushing up against your spine and your spleen and everything else. So we, we need to take care of this immediately. Can you give us a sense of how big that is? What, what, what can you liken it to? Yeah, so that's about the size of a small orange. So imagine that... Clementine. A clementine, exactly. So you're 25 years old, mm-hmm. seemingly completely healthy. Your parents are still in California? That's right. So they're across the country. You know, you, you're living, you know, with your partner. You know, what is that moment like when you go, when your life changes over the course of two days? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, I was like kind of frustrated because I was really killing it at work. I top felt, of the world. Yeah, I felt like I was on top of the world. I was loving DC. I was in social and you know professionally, uh, things were going well. And you know, the last thing I wanted to worry about was this. But then you have to like quickly bring all those thoughts back together, you know, and, and like center yourself and go, okay. I can't do anything else without taking care of my health first and foremost. And so right away, it was like, okay, you have the stage three cancer diagnosis. You need surgery immediately. If you want to have children, like that's a decision you need to make like today because the chemotherapy that's going to come like could threaten your chances for ever having children in the future. So if you want to do that, you need to go make arrangements. By the way, like this, your chemotherapy is going to take three and a half months. 
So you're going to have to take off time from work. You're going to lose your hair. And you're probably going to need surgery afterwards. I mean, the oncologists, like, they just spill all this information, and you're just sitting there. It's like that carousel and metaphor all over again where everything's spinning kind of out of control, and you're just like, wow, I just I can't even keep up. You're just hoping it's not real. You're just wishing it's like yeah. a prank. It doesn't feel like real yeah, life. Yeah, I bet, it, I bet like it takes a minute to sink in, right? A- absolutely. Yeah, and my parents were across the country, and immediately they're like, you need to come to California. Like, come home, we'll get treatment here, you can be with your family. And I said, that's compelling, but my network and, you know, my adopted family, if you will, is here in D.C. And that made all the difference because I don't think D.C. gets the reputation for being a very compassionate town, but I was able to lean on my coworkers and my friends and my extended Obama family, frankly, who were there for me, you know, donated leave put me in contact with doctors, you know, made me more food than I could eat, checked in on my partner, make sure that he was okay. You know, and so that was, for me, I realized, wow, that's like the importance of having a community and knowing that when you go through something like this, it makes a huge difference to have people right there with you, you know, every step of the way. It's, I wish you had like a second Obama hug, like right after that, that doctor's appointment. Yeah, right. That would have been useful at that moment, I think. I needed it. And so he, he actually wrote me a letter, which was really nice. You know, just letting me know, like, hey, Stephen, you, you know, you're part of this family. We're here for you. Do not hesitate to reach out to any of us if there's anything you need. So that that was a really, uh, I, I drew strength from having that, and um, I was very lucky. So tell us a little bit about your treatment, because everything happened really, really quickly, yeah. um, and you had to jump right into those three months of treatment. How did you draw on that optimism that you had built up over the course of your time working in politics and in the Obama administration and apply it to this situation? I think when you're going through a cancer diagnosis, it's hard to find anything to be optimistic about, but you have to find, you have to find something. For like the first month and a half of my diagnosis, I just received like bad news that got worse, that was awful. And you're just mentally just trying to find stable ground so that you can like start trending in the right direction. So like my chemotherapy regimen was, you know, three months and five days a week, like five hours a day. And literally you would go into this room and you're surrounded by people who are sick, often people that are in like much worse shape than you are. And you're all just kind of strapped into a chair and, you know, they plug you in and uh, you get your treatment. And so for me, I enjoyed talking to people there. Um, no surprise. I enjoy talking. <laughs> this seems like a thing that you like to do. I, I yeah. do. I do. Really good at it, too. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a, good, it's a good quality, Stephen. Don't you. you hide it under a bushel basket. I appreciate that. Um, and so, yeah, so I think, you know, for me, I was, like, definitely the youngest person in there. And so I think a lot of people saw, oh, like, you remind me of my grandson. You remind me of my son or whatnot. And so that was always helpful to, like, have those relationships in the room. Um, so that that gave me a lot to be optimistic for in the sense of like, all right, like we're all in this together. Like nobody chose this, but like let's try to make lemons into lemonade the best we can. Um, secondly, you know, being in D.C., uh, you know, 
healthcare reform was like always on the top of everyone's minds. I mean, I mentioned being on the Hill in 2010 when Democrats got walloped. And Which I think is an onomatopoeia. Is an onomatopoeia. Yeah, great. Just so we all know. Good to know. A big part of that was because of the Affordable Care Act. You know, we spent significant amount of time trying to convince people that this was something that was worth doing, this was something worth pursuing. And here I was, I was 25 years old, and in the middle of my treatment, I actually turned 26. And that's a big deal because up until that point in time, I was actually still on my parents' insurance plan, which was a great benefit of Obamacare. You know, you could stay on your parents' plan until you turn 26. What was even better is that because of the Affordable Care Act, I was able to get my own health insurance, no questions asked. Prior to the Affordable Care Act, my testicular cancer diagnosis would have been considered a pre-existing condition, and no insurance company would have any incentive to cover me. And my doctor told me as much. He said, hey, like, you're very lucky that, you know, we're kind of living in this new world. Earlier in my practice, you know, I would diagnose young men all the time, and the rest of their life, this would follow them. They would get better, but again, they would have such a hard time getting health insurance. And so for me, that was like, oh my God, I can't believe I get to take advantage of this, but wow, how lucky am I? that I have health insurance, that I'm in a city that has great access to health care and doctors. And so that, in a weird way, I was optimistic about just, like, dealing with my diagnosis. That's interesting, that though. I mean, so you're literally there when, like, they're, they're having, like, a big reform or a big change, whatever yeah. you want to call it, in, like, health care. It's one thing to write policy, and it's another thing to live it. Yeah, you know, I think people say, oh, you can find stories on both sides that are impacted in either direction. But... Here I was directly benefiting with my life, this change in policy. But how, I mean, you're very sick at this point. How, mm -hmm. how did you interact with your family? Yeah, so during this time too, you know, it's not only physically exhausting, but just mentally taxing. And, you know, people would come over to my house, um, you know, just to check in, to talk, to bring food, etc. Sometimes you have energy for it and sometimes you don't. You know, I would come home from uh, getting chemo and I'd be, you know, running a fever or like a super sore throat, super tired. And the last thing you want to do is like hold court with people like in your house and, you know, how are you, Steve? Oh, I'm fine. How are you? You know, how are you guys doing? And like just wanting to be like that default. Right, like, right, right. You know, just yeah, now you have people. to be the entertainer. Exactly. That's funny. Well, right. also, I'm sure that the dynamics have shifted. You know, I can't imagine, you know, conversations that would normally take place, you know, the, the natural back and forth banter. I'm sure some people that you interacted with were scared to ask you certain questions right. and and perhaps conversation was more stilted than you know it, it might have been otherwise you know what was what was that like yeah that's so true i would say like even my interaction with my parents changed considerably because if this was really hard for me it was also really hard for them to see their son you know go through this treatment and have this diagnosis and you know in a weird way you know somebody told me when i first got diagnosed they said you know when you get diagnosed with cancer you don't have you're not the only one being diagnosed like everyone in your family and your orbit is kind of dealing with it and it's unfair but you're the one that has to kind of manage that new dynamic like it, it falls on you i saw that a lot because you know my parents flew from california to come spend time with me you know my mom's a great school teacher so she had time off during the summer so she was able to come during then my dad was able to take time off from work as well so they would join me but you know as i was getting this bad news you know for me i just 
again, tried to remain centered, tried to, you know, keep my eye on the ball of getting healthy, but it was very hard for them to ingest, you know, like, oh my God, you need surgery. Oh my God, something might be wrong here, might be wrong there. Um, and it's it, a marathon. It is a marathon. It's a long fight. I mean, when, when, after like all of that, just like toiling and fighting and chemo and just like heartache, when do you finally get some good news? I would say about a month and a half in, I finally got my first like nugget of good news. And so prior to treatment, you know, they check your blood and, you know, they do all these tests and my numbers were like off the charts. You know, you should be, you know, the doctor came in and said, hey, Stephen, you know, a healthy male should have this AFP number between zero and eight. You're at 22,000. And that shows us that this is like a very aggressive cancer. We have to be aggressive with our treatment. Our metric for success is that number coming down. So within the first month of chemo, that number started to subside. Oh, good. And that was like, oh, thank God, this is like something's working. Did it keep tailing? Did it keep going? Yeah, so it continues to, it, th- for me, it continued to decline where eventually you get to zero. And that's a great sign because that shows, you know, the cancer's responsive to chemo. Unfortunately, the chemo is like indiscriminate in what it targets. And so you're just like, like you said, you know, you're just coming in every day just so battered and bruised and tired and gross and sick. But you're like, all right, well, I got, as long as that number's coming down, coming down, coming down, coming down, coming down. Um, so you have to like find the good news, you know, in the midst of like everything else that's going on. But when did you hit zero? So I did the three months of chemo and they said, okay, great, your numbers have stabilized, but that tumor in your gut is not gone. It's at actually like still three and three quarters size. So we're gonna have to go in and, and do surgery and get that done. And that was like pretty deflating because you go through like the four months of chemo, three months of chemo, and you're like, all right, I want to be done. And like, all right, now you need to have surgery. We're going to do a biopsy. Hopefully this is the end of the line for you. No guarantees. So I ended up having surgery, um, spent like four days in the hospital. You know, they literally cut you up, take it out. And a week after that, they, you know, did the biopsy and they said, Stephen, Here's the news. You know, you were never promised, but you always hope for. You're cancer-free. Sigh of relief. Such a sigh of relief. Wow. Yeah. So, and, you know, what a shift in your, the way you spend your time. Because you are, you know, a young, athletic, young professional. And, you know, you're, you're going to work. You're working out. You know, probably going out to happy hours. And here you are stuck in a hospital bed. Yeah. You know, what was your routine? Did you did you bring anything with you, like a you know, like a bag of sorts with, with things in them? Like what what got you through? I try to stay as active as possible, you know, because being at home all day was just like no fun. Everyone's like, Oh Steve, like you could watch all the episodes on Netflix and all the movies. And I'm like, yeah, but that gets old after like one day and like I'm not really interested in doing that anyway. So I, I tried to be as active as I could. That doesn't um, sound exciting at all. <laughs> I think we've all found the bottom of the Netflix barrel. And right. when you get there, you're not like, hooray. Right, yeah. I feel so fulfilled. Who gave you that glad. suggestion? I know. Someone very lazy, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but my coworkers had actually, uh, they'd given me a backpack that they, they bought for me, and they stuffed it with a bunch of goodies. And so I would take that with me to the cancer center every time I went. And, yeah, I'd fill it with, like, my iPad and some books and some food and different things. But I can actually remember that uh, one day when I was going to treatment and I had my backpack on, and where I was getting treatment was at GW University. And if you've ever been there, the hospital's located right at the center of campus. And so I remember getting off the metro and getting ready to walk in, and I stopped. And, you know, people were walking by, students and professors and just people in general. And I remember thinking, God, 
I really wish I could be going into a classroom right now and not into the hospital. Just kind of thinking about that. And also just while standing there thinking, nobody here knows that I'm going to go get chemotherapy. I look just like a student, like everybody else. And they would have no idea that I was going through this. And so that was something that I like paused and I like really thought about. After I got through and I was ultimately healthy, that's a lesson that I've carried with me today. We interact with people all the time, and you just never know what they're going through. And, you know, they could be sick, something going on with their family, just having a bad day. So I always just try to give people the benefit of the doubt because I always just think, like, to that time, no one had any idea what I was going through. And, um, and so I try to keep that in mind uh, going forward. So, you know, obviously this has changed your life in a very meaningful way when you are just every day walking the streets of New York City now and through the halls of Stern. Is there, you know, a, a mantra that you really identify with or, or something that you, you know, recite to yourself that really buoys your spirits? Yeah. So something that I thought about a lot uh, while I was sick, and, you know, I'm not a religious person, really, in any way. I was raised Catholic, but, you know, really don't identify with one particular religion. You know, somebody had passed along, you know, when you're sick, you know, people are giving you tons of things and I would get these prayer cards and people are sending me holy water and, you know, and it's really, really nice. Uh, but it's just kind of like an awkward interaction. You're like, oh, th thank you for your thoughts and prayers. I appreciate it. But somebody had given me the serenity prayer and the serenity prayer goes uh, something like, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can and the wisdom to know the difference. I'm pausing to let you like just soak that in for a second, audience. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, the pause is over, Steven. Soaked. The pause is over. Everyone soaked. is soaked it in. <laughs> See, that's a beautiful phrase. I, it's it great is. that you had so much support. I mean, and we're all very happy that you were able to fight through your cancer yeah. and you're here with us today. Um, I think that talking to you um, is like a... What it for me demonstrates like the power of like these long form conversations. Thank you know, you. I, I really enjoyed hanging out with you at school, but I, I didn't know any of this story. Although um, you did do something called Stern Speaks, I did, where you you got to tell your story to uh, an audience of students. It's a great if, if you are a student here and you haven't been to a Stern Speaks, you should definitely go. But now that you're here and you've you've worked in the White House, I mean, you've been at the nation's capital, you fought cancer. I mean, you've been there and back again. What's next for you? That's the million-dollar question, Frank. No, what's next? I think I came to business school. One, I studied business for my undergrad uh, degree, and so I always knew that an MBA was something I may have wanted to pursue one day. But I think it ultimately comes down to is when I was in Washington, you know, we always found, we always tried to find opportunities to partner with businesses to amplify and promote and to validate what we were trying to do. So whether it was, you know, trying to expand healthcare access for people, or whether it was immigration reform or raising the minimum wage. You know, we can always talk about the people and why it made sense, but I always thought a very compelling argument was the business argument for all those things. And so being here, I think, I hope, gives me validity a, a bit in terms of the things that I care about and trying to make the business sense 
for why we should do those things. And so, I, you know, going down the line uh, or looking into the future, I would love to get more involved with public service again. You know, I worked on the Hillary campaign in Florida, which was really interesting. You know, doing those knocking on doors, working with people, trying to get people involved. Since I've come to Stern, you know, I've been involved with the Progressives Group here, the Government Business Association. I think there's a lot of energy out there of people that want to be involved. They just don't know how. And so something that I really care about is bringing people together, trying to channel that energy into something good, and try to give everyone a reason to be optimistic. That's great. So I know that healthcare is near and dear to your heart and to your life, um, and the Affordable Care Act has obviously been very influential. So just as a final shout-out, do you have any sort of message that you want to send to us about general health care? Yeah. You know, I would just say to, to everyone listening, including young people, particularly men, because that's the perspective I have. If you ever suspect something is wrong with your health, just go to the doctor. You know, if you have health insurance, th- that's the reason why it exists. Just go. I know no one likes to do it, but go because it could save your life. I put up with it for two months because I thought it was just minor back pain. Come to find out, it was something much, much worse. So, you know, and I don't want to scare you into going to the doctor, but just go. You know, just something to think about too. You know, we're the most wealthy nation on the hist- in the history of the world, and we don't provide health insurance uh, for our citizens. And I think that's, that's something, you know, I'm, I'm on a soapbox now, but I think that's something that we should prioritize and that we should all try to aim towards uh, in the future. One quick uh, story that I want to share with you guys, sure. because I feel like my Obama world and Stern world kind of like merged at the very end. In January of this year, before I got um, the acceptance call to come to NYU, I went to Chicago for President Obama's uh, final speech, his farewell address. And that was really remarkable because we were in Chicago. There were like 60,000 people there. I saw all my friends that I had been able to work with over the years, volunteers I had worked with you know, along the way. And it was just like a really great night. To my remarkable staff, For eight years, and for some of you a whole lot more, I have drawn from your energy, and every day I try to reflect back what you displayed, heart and character and idealism. I've watched you grow up, get married, have kids, start incredible new journeys of your own, Even when times got tough and frustrating, you never let Washington get the better of you. You guarded against cynicism. And the only thing that makes me prouder than all the good that we've done is the thought of all the amazing things that you are gonna achieve from here. And the very next day, I was in the Chicago airport getting ready to head back to LA. And I said, wow, I feel like one chapter of my life has ended. Literally within 30 minutes, I got the call from NYU. And they said, hey, Stephen, you've been accepted NYU. And literally, as I like, closed one chapter, another one like immediately opened up before me. Did you just live in a movie? Can we, just, can <laughs> we put like applause it. behind it like that it. segment? No, it's got to be genuine. <laughs> Did you just live in a movie, Stephen? It felt wow. like it. It really, it, it honestly felt that way. And, and I think it's timing's perfect. The timing was amazing. Um, and, you know, I was just so relieved. I'm like, all right, I know what I'm doing next. Well, new chapter for you, man. New yeah. chapter. Definitely really exciting. Well, I'll tell you what, man. You've got a great, you got a great story. 
Thank we you. appreciate you sharing it with us. I have learned a lot from everything that you said. I love talking to you, too. I bump Thank into you. you sometimes in the hallway. You're a fun person to bump into. Thanks, Frank. But you've said it all. And I just can't thank you enough for coming in. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for coming on the show and for being a part of the Stern Chats team. You're one of our associate producers. And we are so happy to have your enthusiasm and optimism on board with us. So thank you. Did you have fun, Stephen? I had a blast. Everyone should be involved with Stern Chats. Staff the battle. You have fun, Sherry? I had a great time. All right. Thanks for coming in, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you.